0: starting recording
1: all right you want to go ahead and read
0: i will go ahead and read the thing thanks the room usually boisterous was silent animators executives script editors and the film's director all sat around a long oval table and nobody was saying a word it was supposed to be the next great disney epic a huge sprawling adventure brave heroes a wicked sorceress Action, magic, love, gods, demons, great songs, good triumphing over evil, classic stuff. And none of it was working. The pieces were great, the characters were compelling, the voice work was good, the songs were fun and moved the story along in a great clip. So why wasn't the movie working? The head of animation looked baffled, the director looked concerned, the animators looked worried, and the scriptwriters shuffled their papers. Finally, the head of animation spoke. The kingdom of the sun just... Doesn't work. Three years of work and millions of dollars of finished animation was about to be lost. I feel like I really overused the word work in that. <laughs> Not at all. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, toiling away in the Relative Disasters storyboard minds.
1: And I'm his sister Ella, distinguished professor of 20th century cartoon classics here at Relative Disasters University. Uh, Thanks so much for that genuinely stressful story, Greg. (laughs)
2: It is stressful. I am so
1: excited that today we're going to be taking a look at Kingdom of the Sun, the greatest Disney movie that ever was.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's, it's such a strange tale. This is one of those things that the people who know the story are very polarized on it. There are some people who think that this is the definitive example of executive overreach and, you know, stifling creativity for the sake of getting a movie out on schedule and then there Mm -hmm. are people who are like this is exactly why you have executives who can step in and say the entire thing isn't working shut it down and make it into something else because this movie no matter what was not going to come out on time Mm. so context we got to start with how disney was doing at the time so ever since the death of walt disney disney Animation was really struggling to find a voice they had a string of what are kind of weird movies a lot of which most people have forgotten about there's you know there's the classic robin hood and adventures of winnie the pooh Mm uh the rescuers which was actually a huge movie that i don't think i've ever seen (laughs) the fox and the hound which is one of the most depressing things they've ever done the black cauldron which is just bad the great mouse detective which was fine
1: hey that's a cult classic don't i, don't I insult I the great mouse like detective Thank i you.
0: like the great mouse detective that's a fine movie um but it's certainly not like you know the pinnacle of disney excellence mm. and then they had oliver and company which again is very polarizing i'm not gonna go into it here it's not my cup of tea and then they hit on What a lot of people call the Disney Renaissance. Yes. So it begins in 1989 with The Little Mermaid, and The Little Mermaid is a smash. And the reason that these films are so stuck in the public consciousness and just so successful has -hmm. a lot to do with Disney reinventing their animation to be essentially an animated Broadway musical. They tend to follow a formula, which, if you're looking for it, you can spot it in all of these renaissance films you have an opening number that catches everybody's attention and introduces the world the i want song Mm -hmm. a love song usually the song that's just in there for fun because it's a great song think of under the sea from little mermaid be our guest the, the showstopper basically yeah and the great villain song so those are those are the the things that they hit on and it works like gangbusters little mermaid biggest movie of the year Beauty and the Beast, biggest movie of the year, gets nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. Aladdin, biggest movie of the year. Mm. The Lion King, maybe the biggest hand drawn animated movie of all time.
1: I never realized that those movies were so close together. They were really oh, yeah. cranking them out.
0: They did basically one a year Little Mermaid in 89. <laughs> oh Beauty and the Beast was 91, but they had The Rescuers Down Under come out in 1990, which also was a big success. But it kind of gets lost in the shuffle because it's not one of those sort of Broadway formula movies. Mm -hmm. So Beauty and the Beast in 91, Aladdin in 92, and then you have The Lion King in 94. So then the magic kind of wears off. The next two movies in the pipeline are Pocahontas and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Mm -hmm. followed by Hercules and then Mulan and then Tarzan. Mm -hmm. And then you hit the next thing in the production schedule that was supposed to come out was The Kingdom of the Sun. But what happened with Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame is that basically something just doesn't work with those two. I would argue with Pocahontas, it's just a garbage movie. That might be an unpopular opinion, but it's not a film that has many redeeming qualities to it. Hunchback of Notre Dame is actually a fantastic movie, but it's very dark for a Disney film. Mm. Most importantly, neither one of these movies do very well at the box office. Obviously, they make back their budget, but they don't do business like The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin do business. Mm -hmm. So they need a hit, basically. Disney needs a big hit. And they turn to Roger Allers. So Roger Allers was one of the co-directors of The Lion King. He came in to The Lion King when The Lion King was having a lot of script problems. And it was in no way recognizable as the film that, that we know today. So Roger Allers comes in and saves the Lion King, basically. He turns around a, a very troubled production, he cuts all out the fat, he makes it a uh, very heartfelt and very sweeping, moving, epic kind of a movie, and it comes out, and it is it might be the best Disney movie they've put out. So what winds up happening is Roger Allers comes in, and he's got an idea. He wants to set a movie in the ancient Incan Empire,
2: mm.
0: and he comes up with this, epic of kingdom of the sun it's going to be a huge movie it's going to involve essentially at its core it's going to be the prince and the pauper set in the ancient Incan empire there's going to be an emperor and the emperor switches places with a lowly llama farmer mm-hmm. and the llama farmer Turns out to be a great emperor and teaches the real emperor how to be a good person. And I feel
1: like this is a story that pops up in Disney fairly often.
0: Disney has only done The Prince and the Pauper once, and it was done as a Mickey Mouse animated short film. Mm-hmm. And so they haven't actually done this story before. So it makes sense that they would
1: have like an epic one of those huge musical epics along this exactly. storyline. Exactly.
0: Okay. Because what they're trying to do, essentially, is they're trying to recapture the magic of The Lion King. Aww. So, in 1994, a few things have happened in the higher-ups at Disney. First of all, very early on in the production of Kingdom of the Sun, Jeffrey Katzenberg leaves Disney. He and Michael Eisner have it out, and Eisner stays, Katzenberg goes, and he goes off and he forms DreamWorks, and that, you know, becomes basically Disney's biggest rival since then. At this time, Disney is working on two other films at the same time. They're they're putting into pre-production Tarzan. They're finishing up production on Hercules and Mulan. And so so Elton John did the songs for The Lion King. They have Phil Collins doing the songs for Tarzan. So they feel like they want to reach out and get a big name kind of rock star guy. And so they strike a deal to get Sting to come on and do the songs for Kingdom of the Sun. Excellent choice. It is. It's a pretty decent choice. Now, as part of this deal, the filmmaker Trudy Styler is allowed to make a behind-the-scenes documentary, not necessarily so much about the animation, but about Sting's creative process working with the animation, which is very simple for her to do because they're married. Yeah. So she's got unlimited access to him. So it's important to talk about what the animation production process actually looks like, because it's something that, first of all... It, it, it's not necessarily super intuitive. Mm. This is not a matter of you write a script, you go out and animate the script, you have voice actors come in and record the lines, and then you're good. Basically, for a hand-drawn animated film during the 1990s to get made, you're looking at about six years of production time. Jeez. Yeah. So it's 1994. Their target date is the year 2000. So Roger Allers gets his animators together, he gets his character designers together, and he drafts this story that really could be called epic. It is a big, big swing. Mm -hmm. They get Sting to do the music, but the problem is they don't have a script.
1: (laughs) So they have everybody they need. They have a team. They just don't have a script. They have a team. Or they have a team and a story.
0: They sort of have a story, because here's the thing, Roger Allers keeps adding to the story.
1: And then they're like going around waving their arms, going, "Bigger! We need more musical numbers. We need more costumes. Yep.
0: Awesome! That's exactly it. Exactly <laughs> it. And 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 the problem is that I I really feel bad for Sting in all this because they kind of sent him off with like, "Here's what the movie's gonna be about. Come up with some some set piece songs. You know, these are things that are going to to either be big show stopping musical numbers or they're going to be let's talk about the world." in which we are. Mm. The problem is, you know, he doesn't have a script to work off. He's got barely a story outline. So he comes up with some fun songs about, you know, llamas and, uh, you know, how beautiful the land is and stuff like that. But he can't, for example, make a song for somebody to sing because that character might be cut a week later or might've been cut a week before and they just didn't tell him yet. Mm -hmm. I feel badly for him because he, he puts, I want to say, like, four years of work into this movie. Oh, jeez. And he gets, as we'll see at the ending, basically none of the songs that he makes go into the film. So Roger Allers gets his people together. And I don't think it can be stressed enough just what kind of pull Roger Allers has at Disney. Mm -hmm. He is a golden director. He came up through the animation studio. He knows animation really well. He's an excellent story writer. He knows how to make... A good compelling story and like we said at the beginning he saves the Lion King which gets him all the credit that they could give him mm-hmm. but unfortunately what that means is that he doesn't have somebody kind of breathing down his neck making sure that the movie is actually on track
1: so he's just has a giant budget and a ton of people yep and he's just doing whatever okay
0: and he's being told basically go nuts do do your do your Inca story okay so they what send could the possibly production... go wrong? <laughs> well a few things so they send the the, they send the production crew down to machu picchu Mm -hmm. they get to do these awesome sketches of llamas and hang out in south america for a while and Mm. learn about the culture and and the clothing and there's lots of great costume design pieces that come out of this and so the story kind of balloons a little bit i'm just i'm Basically, as bits and pieces keep getting added to it, Mm -hmm. the film gets more and more out of control. In terms of, you just don't have the time to do a movie like this. Mm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna treat you here to a little bit of a uh, what would have been a pitch meeting to get anybody else thrown out of the building.
1: Oh yay! Let's do it.
0: You're an executive. You're the head of animation for Disney, and I'm coming to you with this with this story proposal. Okay. Okay. All right. So, here's the deal. Next movie, we're going to do The Prince and the Pauper.
1: Great. Love it. Okay,
0: We haven't done it before. It's been done in, like, a Mickey short. No big deal. We haven't done a big-scale epic version of this. And we're going to set it in the ancient Incan Empire, okay?
1: Even better. I love it so much.
0: So, we're going to have the emperor of this Incan Empire switch places with a uh, a llama shepherd okay perfection the main antagonist of this film you're going to love the main antagonist okay so we're going sorceress here i'm, I'm thinking basically a, a combination of jafar and maleficent ah I, amazing yes she's great now she wants does she have a henchman she does not really have a henchman we're, we think we're going to put this sort of rock thing is sort of a uh, a person for her to bounce ideas off of. We're not really sure where we're going with that yet. His name's going to be Huaca, though, and he's going to be he's going to be voiced by uh, Harvey (laughs) Firestein. So, you know, it's going to be good. We're going to get Eartha Kitt to be the sorceress. Yes. She's amazing in everything she does. Mm -hmm. So what the sorceress wants is she wants to stay young and beautiful forever. Don't we all? So she's making a deal with the ancient god of death to blot out the sun forever
1: it's very relatable i love this so far let me give you a hundred million
0: dollars to start she's going to catch the emperor and the herder you know Mm -hmm. she's gonna catch them switching places and she's gonna realize hey this is my moment and she's gonna turn the emperor into a llama
1: i mean of course
0: okay okay yeah now stay with me because because i don't want this to get overcomplicated.
1: <laughs> oh no we're not even close to overcomplicated. i love it i love so it
0: she's gonna she's gonna go to the uh pauper character mm-hmm. who's gonna be played by owen wilson you know very laid back very relatable cool guy yep and she's gonna let him know hey i'm on to you i know this will switch you do what i tell you to do but see here's the twist he's gonna fall in love with the woman who was betrothed to the emperor Mm. who doesn't like him because the emperor's kind of a jerk right but then she notices wait a minute this guy's totally different now and he's really sweet and nice and they start falling in love meanwhile okay this is the great part the emperor who is now a llama is going to fall in love with a woman who is also a llama herder because he can still talk right okay and and so they're gonna he's gonna fall in love with her (laughs) And so, and so that's what we're going to do. Now, this movie is going to be amazing. It's going to be a, a a romantic comedy epic that's just going to... It's going to be the biggest smash we can possibly make. So right what now. kind of a movie is this, though?
1: Like, is it an epic? Is it a romance? Is it a comedy? Is it all of those things? Are we shooting for, like, a six-hour miniseries? Um, How many characters do we have? How many musical numbers? How many locations?
0: Well, uh... Um uh you know I yeah I love your <laughs> that's ambition where everything <laughs> falls apart I love your ambition
1: let's do it all
0: <laughs> Yep
1: Here is 900 million dollars knock yourself out
0: That's how far out the movie has ballooned at this point mm. What it started off as a very kind of small guy switches places guy learns to be more nice to be a better ruler by being a kinder person kind of lesson mm-hmm. has turned into all that And really what you've got is you've got these huge ideas that are kind of smashing into each other. And Allers just can't cut any of it. You know, if you cut this piece, then you're going to lose this whole piece. And if you cut that whole piece, then we have to change this whole piece. And the problem is that the animators are working at this point. Oh. About anywhere from a quarter to a third of the film is animated. So
1: they don't have a final script. And they've started animating?
0: They don't have a final script. They don't have the film story finalized. And they've been animating. Is
1: that unusual? That is incredibly unusual. Okay, good. Because that seems really inefficient.
0: It's super inefficient. Usually during these situations, you have your producer and your heads of animation are kind of looking over the director's shoulder and saying, okay, look, this isn't working. Let's lose this. Let's add this. Let's trim this down. Let's buff this up they're kind of guiding the story along and it's the director's job to basically manage all of the pieces of the story. And usually Disney will put two directors on a film because an animated film is so much harder to make that you, it really helps to have two people at the top. Mm -hmm. And so what winds up happening is they, they bring in somebody to serve as a second director. They bring in a guy named Mark Dindal. Now Mark Dindal is awesome. He's a very interesting guy. He came up again through the Disney animation. He and Roger Allers had actually worked together on some pieces of The Little Mermaid. Mm. So it wasn't like they didn't know each other. It wasn't like they, they were, you know, trying to rein in Roger Allers so they brought in this stranger. Mark Dindal had just had a huge critical hit with a film called Cats Don't Dance. Which is is that a Disney movie? It is not. It was the only movie ever put out by Turner Animation.
1: Hmm. I've never heard of it.
0: Yeah, n- most people haven't. Uh, <laughs> it's actually I don't want to go into it too much here, but it's a, it's a very good film. Mm-hmm. It was the last film that Gene Kelly worked on. Oh, he was the choreographer for it. Mm-hmm. And despite the animation being a little rougher than you know Disney's standard, it is very very good. It's got a lot of heart to it. It's a very sweet film. It's really meant to serve as sort of an allegory of people of color in Hollywood during the time period of the film. Mm -hmm. And it's really well done. And so the film bombed at the box office because Warner Brothers did not promote it at all. Mm -hmm. Because by the time the film was finished, Turner Animation was out of money and they were shutting down. So Warner Brothers just sort of shoved it out into theaters. So the film bombed, but critics loved it and especially animation critics loved it. So much so that the producers of Kingdom of the Sun reached out to Mark Dindal and were like, hey, come back to Disney. <laughs> and so he did. And so they brought him in to be co-director of Kingdom of the Sun. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that winds up happening is there is a big meeting where basically the manure hits the fan. Is this the sweat so box? This is the sweat box. Okay. So it's 1998 at this point. So we are four years into production.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the sweat box is a showing room okay it's a place in the disney animation studios where you put up on screen your animatics your storyboards some voice work that's mostly done by whoever's happens to be near a microphone at the time just so people can see the shape of the movie okay mm-hmm. so it's 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 very much a work in progress but it really gives everybody a chance to see what the film is doing so
1: is this the first time that like the executives get a look at what the creative people have been working on. No, is this like where they, where they kind of critique? So
0: it's not the first time that the heads of animation have seen the work that's been going on, mm-hmm. but it's the first time really that they've seen all that work collated, put in together, one place. exactly. Oh, okay. Because the thing is about sense. the original Roger Allers Kingdom of the Sun, there are lots of set pieces that are amazing. Mm. Apparently, the ending. Was incredible where the Emperor and his pauper twin undo the damage of Eartha Kitt's sorceress, and the whole sequence was just Mm jaw-dropping. But here's the problem: so, what the Sweatbox is, is it is this theater, and the entire purpose of this theater is you sit there with the heads of animation, the producers, the people who work on it, and you watch the film, and then their job is to tear it to pieces because. Anything that's not working needs to be killed before you spend six months animating a sequence that you're going to need to cut later, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem is that basically the whole movie doesn't work. Oh dear. Oh yeah. And it's 1998. You're four years into production. Oh god. Yeah. Oh, so this is... (laughs) Everybody goes to the the review room where they sit down at their tables Mm -hmm. and the two heads of animation come in and say, everybody, thank you so much for your hard work. We need to speak to Mark and Roger alone.
1: Okay. So that's not a good sign. Oh, yeah.
0: So you're two years away from when this movie has to be in theaters because mm-hmm. you've signed contracts to deliver this movie in theaters. And the
1: total responsibility for the production problem
0: lies with the director. It really lies on the director, unfortunately, because here's the th- every, every source that you have on this is like, Roger Allers is a great guy. He's awesome. This should have worked. And the fact that it didn't is just insane. Mm. The two heads of the studio sit down with roger allers and mark dindahl and they're like okay this is no longer a question of what do we refine and make great this is what can we save oh no oh yeah and it's heartbreaking for allers because he's poured four years of his life into this and and at this point he's not going to get this movie made so
1: what do you think the problem is with the production. Like what do you think is causing it to fail? Because we have like this whole range of like talented people. We have all these oh, yeah. resources like pouring into this production. It yeah. sounds like it should be really good. Like what is it that's not working? It's really
0: hard to put your finger on without being able to see the th- the actual film, obviously. Mm. But from everything that I've read from people who were in the rooms and from interviews with Roger Allers and interviews with Mark Dindal and interviews with Tom Schumacher and Peter Schneider, who are the the heads of animation. Mm-hmm. The entire problem with the film is that it's just overstuffed. There's just too much in it. And the too much makes the film really hard to follow, really hard to know who you're supposed to be cheering for and which story are you going to follow? Mm-hmm. So basically they have to go after this thing with, you know, shears and, what winds up happening is, in an effort to save the film, Mark Dindal mm-hmm. proposes that we just completely shift this to essentially a comedy.
1: <laughs> it's the only genre that it hasn't been so far.
0: Yeah, pretty much. And the thing is, is you've, got, you've got to remember <laughs> that at this point, Anywhere from a quarter to a third of the film is already animated. They've already spent anywhere mm-hmm. from 25 to $30 million on this. Mm-hmm. And your choices are shut down production and just lose all that money. Mm-hmm. Try to keep pushing forward with Roger Allers' idea and just trust that he can make it work at the finish line. Mm-hmm. Or scrap it, keep what you can, and just make what you can out of it. And Roger Allers asks for six months. He says, "Give me six months. Let me retool this, make it the epic that it needs to be." And the heads of animation, and I—I I think it's at this point that Michael Eisner gets involved. Mm-hmm. But basically, somebody, you know, has to has to go down the ladder and basically say, "We can't give you six months. We gave you four years. Mm-hmm. And if you can't make it work in four years, I don't think six months is going to make a difference." And so Roger Allers steps down. He, he doesn't, you know, quit in a huff. He doesn't burn the studio down on his way out. He's just like, all right, this isn't the movie that I want to make. And I, I think it makes the most sense for me to just walk away from the project. I mean, he's incredibly graceful about it. Does he
1: ever direct anything for Disney ever again? I just want to know what happened after this fiasco.
0: He does do a little bit of story work on Lilo and Stitch and... A little bit of story work on uh, the film *Brother Bear*, so he's not blacklisted. He's certainly not blacklisted. after this. No, 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 no. But he okay. is not. He is never a director for Disney again. Okay. He goes on to direct the 2006 *Little Match Girl* ah. Disney adaptation, which is a short. It's very good. But after that, he leaves Disney. He goes to work for Sony. He works on *Open Season*, *Surfs Up* classics. He works on The Prophet, which is an animated film based on Khalil Gibran's The Prophet.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. That is a wide range of (laughs) productions.
0: It's a weird range of productions. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm glad this
1: didn't kill his career.
0: (laughs) It doesn't kill his career, but he doesn't direct a feature film for Disney again. Mm. Okay. Okay. So he walks away from the production. Now, once Roger Allers is off the production, unfortunately, the people at the top Michael Eisner and the people, the, the real heads of Disney, basically lose all faith in the project. They give the producers two weeks, salvage what you can from this production, mm-hmm. or we're just going to take our losses and shut it down. Oh, God. Which, here's the interesting thing, that's not the first time Disney's done that. The first time Disney has done that was actually all the way back at Pinocchio. Oh, no kidding. Because you got to remember, those early Disney movies... They might have been smash hits and critical darlings, but they barely made any money because they cost so much to make. Mm-hmm. Sleeping Beauty was basically a Pyrrhic victory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an amazing piece of animation. It made a ton of money. It barely made back what they spent on it. Mm. Just under the wire.
1: <laughs> animation is expensive, especially when you're talking about hand-drawn animation.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. You need people who know what they're doing
1: and they cost money.
0: (laughs) Well, not only do they cost money, but their time costs Mm -hmm. so much money. Because if you're going to employ, I mean, a great example of this is the animator, the original animator for the evil sorceress character in Kingdom of the Sun. Mm -hmm. He made her into this amazing character. And then once the film was going to be switched to a comedy, he walked He went over and worked on Lilo and Stitch instead. He's like, this isn't the character that I created. So nearly all of his work couldn't be applied to the new film. Mm -hmm. And you were talking four years of work by one of the best animators of all time. Gone. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah,
0: it hurts. So executives give them two weeks to salvage this. Mm -hmm. So Mark Dindal, who is now the only director in charge, he renames it Kingdom in the Sun.
1: (laughs) No, that's a terrible, terrible title.
0: <laughs> it, it's you know, it's it's. Don't worry, the title will get worse as we okay. go. Okay, <laughs> great, great. He calls on a writers' room. They kind of strike gold. Mm-hmm. He gets a writers' room together and basically tells them, "This is the footage. This is the animation that we have. These are the completed character designs that we have. These are the set pieces that we have." We can only save X, Y, and Z. What are we going to hack this movie into so we can get it done in one year? Cause that's all the time we have left.
1: This explains so much about Emperor. Oh yes. About the movie they so end up with.
0: <laughs> here's what they end up with. They end up with an emperor who gets changed into a llama
2: mm-hmm. by
0: an evil sorceress. They cut the entire Prince and the Pauper. They cut the entire sorceress's plan to bring eternal darkness to stay young forever. They change the llama herder from being the twin of the emperor to being a family man Mm -hmm. and a father figure for the emperor. They rework the emperor a little bit to be a spoiled brat. And at this point, we got to talk about the casting because the casting for this movie is really perfect.
1: Yes, Eartha Kitt.
0: Oh, God, Eartha Kitt is amazing as Izma the sorceress, the evil sorceress. David Spade voices the emperor, and they actually had to change his name, too. I'm not going to say what his original name was, but they found that it is a very, very bad word in Japanese. Like, one of the few words that people just do not say in public. <laughs> so, they change his name to Cusco, the emperor. They throw out all of Owen Wilson's stuff for the pauper, Aww. And they bring in, well, they had to. I know. And they but... bring in John Goodman mm-hmm. to voice Pacha, the father figure mentor, very kind man, yeah. uh, llama herder. And then, and then, mm. and then they strike gold. Because <laughs> one of the new additions to this completely changed story is that Yzma has a sidekick, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, Isma's sidekick was supposed to be this generic background soldier, okay? There was this one piece of dialogue where the emperor is trying to distract the guards from what his pauper twin is doing at that moment. So he randomly engages one of the guards in conversation and the he he goes up to the guard and he says, you know, you, what's your deal? And the guard lifts his shirt to show off his abs and he says, I do a thousand crunches a day. That's my deal. Nice. And it's this weird moment of comedy that gets, you know, completely cut because it's not part of part of what the <laughs> film turns into but that character kind of sticks with everybody's head and the animators and the writers go to bat for this character. They, they are willing to fight you to keep this character in the movie and they have to because they're like, here's what we need to do. We need this character to lighten this entire thing. Otherwise the film's going to come off as either preachy or just bad. So here's our concept. We want this character right here, this guard kind of guy to be Yzma the sorceresses Main sidekick henchman and he is going to be delightful yes and the executives basically are like you have no time to do this prove it or cut it and so they write the dinner scene where the dinner scene is a pivotal moment in the finished film where the sorceress is going to poison the emperor so that she can take over
1: oh right 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 i do know what famous and, is.
0: yes <laughs> it's famous <laughs> and, and it's amazing because the entire time, her henchman is, of course, worried about the food. Yes. He wants to make sure that his spinach puffs that he that he's created are going to be a big hit with the emperor that they're about to poison. So that sort of sets the tone for this character, and he's amazing. He, they settle on the name of Kronk, and they get the wonderful Patrick Warburton to voice him. Perfection. Patrick Warburton is a voice acting genius. This is a guy who if you need a character to be utterly delightful, you get him. Warburton's, this might be his best work. I would also throw up there the live-action superhero series called The Tick from the early 2000s. -hmm. The show itself, very rough, but his take on The Tick is awesome. Consistently awesome. Yes. So, now they gotta tell Sting that they're cutting all his songs. (laughs)
1: And, wait... Okay, so where are we with Sting? Is his wife still making this documentary? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, boy.
0: his wife is still making this documentary. So she has captured, essentially, how the sausage is made. And mm-hmm. the thing is, they had no objections to this at all. The people at Disney were actually pretty psyched about this documentary because they'd never had this happen before. Mm-hmm. The closest that they'd come was The Lion King, and there were a couple of script issues with Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, but they were all pretty hammer The Lion King was caught very early in production, so they were able to turn it around and make their release date with no issues. Most of the stuff in Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin was tone-based, and they were able to fix it very very quickly and easily without spending millions of dollars and wasting lots of time. And...
1: This is not that. that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So so they have to call up Sting and let him know that at this point, Sting has written eight songs, and it's been five years where you know they keep they keep calling him up and saying hey we've made these changes can you come up with a new song he's trying to get his new album finished up Mm -hmm. he thought this was going to be like one or two years and he's done and nope they call him up and they say listen you've written amazing music for this we've got to cut it all can you make for us a beginning song and an end song and to his eternal credit sting does not tell them to go pound sand he actually just does the work. Even though he knows now that instead of this being an epic with his songs at the, the height of it, it's just going to be, you're going to do an intro song, you're going to do a song over the credits, and that's it, But So the intro song he comes up with, by the way, is called Perfect World, and it is the best intro song in any Disney movie. Fight me, fans of Beauty and the Beast. Aww. It's so good, mostly because it is a pure distillation of the character this isn't a setting the stage for the location of the place this is all you need to know about this main character is he is a gigantic jerk and here is his song and they get tom jones to sing it and it's amazing
1: he is nominated for an oscar for that song is not
0: he is not sting is nominated for an oscar for the ending song called my funny friend and me
1: Okay, that's not as good to me.
0: <laughs> Which is fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's certainly not a bad song. I, I think, honestly, what that song is is Sting's fatigue with having to work with these people.
1: Yeah, I hear you.
0: The other problem that they have is that Hercules had come out a couple years before mm-hmm. and had not been the big hit that Disney had wanted it to be. And they, their thinking on it was that it wasn't a big hit because of the tone, because they tried to make it too comedic so we can't afford going too comedic and fortunately the director mark Dindal and the the animation heads go to bat for it and they say listen the problem with hercules wasn't that it wasn't funny the problem with hercules was that it had too many characters and it changed tones too rapidly we are going to essentially just make a buddy road movie that's what we're doing
1: <laughs> with llamas
0: with llamas
1: I, I'm not going to lie. I love that concept and I'm sad that they had to waste four years and $30 million coming
0: up with that. that. And this is also one of those things where it's like the writer's room basically was sort of shunted off into a corner because at this point, Disney executives were looking at this movie as, all right, just try to make the loss not hurt so much. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, try to make back at least the budget. So they were basically allowed to go off and do whatever the heck they wanted, which is fantastic. They are allowed to make set pieces that you would not see in a Disney movie. They're allowed to make jokes. They're allowed to basically make, I think my favorite review of this, I think it was Roger Ebert who said, this is the best Looney Tunes movie ever made. (laughs) That's because so because it, it runs on that kind of logic it, it's definitely
1: just, got that energy <laughs> oh my god yes
0: it's just bananas there are scenes with cronk talking to squirrels to get directions and a scene where a squirrel pulls a pulls a balloon from nowhere to wreak havoc on people and it's wonderful it's so good and so the final limp to the finish line here They changed the name again to The Emperor's New Groove.
1: Mm, I don't love that title.
0: I don't either. It's a hard movie to get behind, and I think the problem with it is that One, it's got nothing to do with the Emperor's New Clothes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's the association that I think I jumped to. I will say it's better than Kingdom in the Sun. Sure. Kingdom in the Sun is terrible. You can't
0: call it Kingdom of the Sun because it's no longer this, you know, epic sort of thing. If you call this movie Kingdom of the Sun, people are going to come expecting something that this movie is not. Mm. So I don't know what else they could have called it. I mean, the Llama King, maybe, you know, use the same font from the Lion King and just go from there. (laughs) But they didn't
1: it's part two (laughs) the
0: story what winds up happening (laughs) is the film it was supposed to come out in summer of 2000 disney was able to shuffle things around on their schedule so that it could come out in december of 2000 Mm -hmm. and it comes out to basically a wet splat
1: that breaks my heart it's such a good movie it's It's so funny
0: and it's incredibly funny disney does not know how to market this movie and I encourage you to go out and try to find the original movie posters for this film because it's obvious that they have no idea what to make of this. It is just mm-hmm. it is just such a bananas out there, not standard Disney movie. It is not an easy film to market.
1: Yeah, I can see that. So this movie came out when I was in college and a lot of my friends were really into animation. Yep. And I remember people going to see it thinking it was like a movie for young children. And then I, you know, my other friends yes. went thinking it was more like a historical epic. Yep. Um, and nobody was happy after they saw it, but they oh, no. all, but they all like brought away things that they really enjoyed about it. Sure. And I think a lot of us kind of watched it and were a little disappointed and then watched it again three or four years later. And we're like, this is an amazing movie.
0: <laughs> I remember when it came out and just being kind of like, the heck is this and plus it was out against some pretty strong competition that was
1: the other thing yeah
0: in the theaters the movie made just shy of 90 million in the US and about another 80 million worldwide so 170 million for a film that they'd spent you know you can't actually find these figures but they probably spent about 120 million on it at that point mm-hmm. that that is you know basically in disney terms that's a flop now <laughs> In the time since then. Right. The Emperor's New Groove has gone on to be one of the most beloved films of this era because it throws out all the epic Disney stuff that you think it's going to be about. And it concentrates on two things. It concentrates on being screamingly funny Mm -hmm. and having a genuine heart. It's the first movie where you have one of the two protagonists who is married, has kids, his wife is still alive. Yeah, that's a big deal for Disney. <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a big step for those folks. His wife is also pregnant, which is something they'd never done before. Oh, interesting. Also, Sting winds up contributing in a huge way to the ending of the film. Mm. The plot device that kicks off the movie is that the Emperor wants to build a amusement park, essentially, On top of the mountain where Pacha, the llama herder, and his family live. So he's going to evict all of them and build this gigantic Cusco-topia. Which kicks off you learning that he's a horrible person. Right. And then the end of the film was supposed to be him just making his Cusco-topia on the next hill over. (laughs) And Sting, of all people.
1: Yeah, I have to say, that's not a very compelling character arc. (laughs) It's
0: not a great character arc. Uh, but sting of all people comes up and submits a story note interesting look don't do that that is if you have him do that i am resigning and i'm going to be loud about it because you're going to trample the different people we haven't met yet to make a theme park that's not okay Mm. at all and to their credit the people involved with the story are like oh yeah no he's completely right that's a terrible character arc and so it ends with him making a small hut on the hill across from Pachas and and the, and so they live happily ever after and it's 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 a really really it's a good movie it's mm-hmm. a good movie that deserves all the love we can give it because it's from that kind of lost era of disney movies where disney was just like The renaissance is over and we're just trying whatever right now. And (laughs) it's, it's great. So the final thing that, that I wanted to bring up is the soundtrack because the Emperor's New Groove soundtrack actually has songs in it that are not in the film because this is, I kind of feel like this is part of the, let's try to keep Sting happy zone.
1: I mean, poor Sting. He poured what, six, eight years into this?
0: It was, it was like four or five, but yeah. You
1: can still see some of the songs that got cut on YouTube.
0: You can see some of the songs that got cut on YouTube, and you can see them on this soundtrack.
1: Right, they're excellent songs.
0: They're great songs. In fact, one of the songs, uh, there's been a real push. The villain song he came up with is this song called Snuff Out the Light.
1: Yes, it is brilliant.
0: First of all, Eartha Kitt absolutely crushes it on vocals. Mm-hmm. But it's also like... It is a perfect Disney villain song.
1: It is the only other thing I've ever seen to compare it to is Cruella de Vil. And 101 Dalmatians. It's that same kind of like over-the-top villain energy. Oh, sure. Yeah.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. No,
1: it's a great song.
0: So that song, and then there's the um, the song he wrote about llamas, which was supposed to be sung by the original version of the Pacha character. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a very good Disney love song called One Day She'll Love Me.
1: Oh, that's so Disney. Yeah.
0: It's so Disney. <laughs> but it was supposed to be sung, from what I understand, between the two couples. So like you have these two couples who are sort of coming to realization that they that they're falling for each other. And it's just a very sweet kind of song. And those three survived and were put on the soundtrack album for Emperor's New Groove, Mm -hmm. literally with like a note that's like, these were original songs that had to be cut from the film.
1: (laughs) Tell me about uh, Sweatbox the movie. So I understand there's been some uh, controversy. (laughs) Give me the gossip.
0: (laughs) So the final thing that we want to talk about is the thing that is the source for most of what we know about this production, Mm -hmm. which is the film The Sweatbox. What to say about The Sweatbox? So The Sweatbox, as we said before, was a deal between Trudy Styler and Disney executives to document the making of Kingdom of the Sun. The film itself is finished it was supposed to be theatrically released in 2001 and it was and and it it was it wasn't released in 2001 disney allowed it to be premiered at the toronto film festival in 2002 mm-hmm. and then they submitted it for a one week run in los angeles so that it would be eligible for the academy oh that's nice of them and then they buried it
1: yeah and you cannot you cannot find it i I don't know how many rabbit holes I went down on the internet and I could not yeah. find a copy that was available for watching.
0: It, if it pops up on YouTube, it gets taken down very, very quickly. It is incredibly hard to get a hold of.
1: I, I have to imagine there are a few bootleg copies on VHS being traded around on the depths of the Disney wikis. Well, there's only
0: bootleg copies. <laughs> exactly. So that's the thing. I mean, I, I have seen The Sweatbox. I think it's an absolutely... Incredible look at how the sausage is made. Mm. I can absolutely see why Disney doesn't want it in wide release or available on DVD or anything, but I disagree. I really feel like it's, it tells a story that is incredibly compelling and really should be made available to the general public because, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of your own creative process. Honestly, Disney, of all people, should be like, yeah. We stubbed our toe on this film. Here's the documentary about us stubbing our toe. But have you seen Moana? <laughs> have you seen Frozen? We didn't exactly fall apart, you know? I
1: like to think it's kind of a training film, and they show it secretly to it new animators <laughs> and oh, new executives. It,
0: I, it should be shown to Come into the back
1: room. Directors. We want to show you the sweatbox. <laughs>
0: and the thing that's really polarizing about it, and the thing that's polarizing about this entire story mm-hmm. is... You can, you can absolutely read all of the things about this as executives, they don't know what creative people are like, and they, and they just want to be in control. And you can absolutely watch this and be like, you know, God, I really feel for Roger Allers, but dude, that movie was never going to work. Mm. And it's really not cut and dry either way. You mm-hmm. can absolutely look at the studio executives and be like, oh my God, that is, you know, that is thorough incompetence. Or you can look at them and being like, yeah, that's their job. Like their job is to shut you down if it's not going to work. And uh, it's, whew.
1: I guess you really need both for a successful, especially such a huge production.
0: So one of my favorite quotes about creativity of all time comes from the great Jill Schoonmaker. Mm-hmm. And she she has said, Look, creativity is not thinking outside the box. Creativity is looking at the box and saying, what can I do in there? Because here's the thing, no matter what, you're always going to have two limitations, time and money when you're making a film. Mm-hmm. And in everything, we're, al- we're always going to have the limitation of time, you know, not to get too philosophical on us. But if you can't make the incredible epic Incan movie, that you want to make, in the amount of time, with the amount of money given to you, then do the best you can, you know?
1: Yeah, I could see
0: that. It frustrates me when this gets turned into a, a case study of creative people versus, you know, heartless executives, or it gets turned into, oh, these, these executives shouldn't have given this crazy guy that much leeway to make this film that wasn't ever going to work. You've got to look at what you have and make the Mm. best of it. I don't know.
1: I think it's really a cautionary tale on uh, collaborating Uh, with the full team, you know?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you. I had never heard of any of this stuff and it was like the most interesting thing to research. And I was amazed at how much there is out there on just the amount of thought and like research that other people have put into really digging into this story is yeah impressive and uh and it's,
0: it's an impressive story
1: it is an impressive story although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible if you'd like to read more about our sources we have a complete bibliography available in our show notes If we got anything wrong, please let us know.
0: You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella?
1: Uh, So we are going to take a hard left. (laughs) And... Okay. We have a big one for you. Uh, we're going to do the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD oh. 79, which buried the Roman cities of, you know this one, Greg.
0: Well, Pompeii.
1: Pompeii, Oplontis, and Herculaneum. So I know it's a disaster we're probably familiar with the basics of, but there's been some really interesting new research and archaeological discoveries in the past couple of years. All right. And so I'm excited to talk to you about it.
0: That sounds like an amazing disaster, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.